the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Eternal Father, you called St. Philip the Evangelist to open his mouth, and beginning with Scripture, tell the good news of Jesus Christ. By virtue of our baptism, we too are called to work for the salvation of souls. Instill in our hearts the zeal of St. Philip, that we may convert hearts and minds to your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Welcome to the St. Philip Institute podcast. My name is Luke Arredondo. I'm the Director of Faith Formation for the St. Philip Institute, and I'm joined by Bishop Joseph Strickland, founder of the St. Philip Institute and Bishop of the Diocese of Tyler in Texas. Um, today we are joined by Dr. Scott Hahn. Uh, Dr. Scott Hahn is the M Father Michael Scanlon Professor of Biblical Theology and the New Evangelization at Franciscan University of Steubenville and the founder and president of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology and the author of many, many books, uh, a few that come to mind, The Lamb's Supper uh, and Kinship by Covenant, uh, two of his classic works, and we're, we're here with him today to talk about It Is Right and Just, uh, which is a new book that he's co-authored with Brandon McGinley. Uh, so It Is Right and Just, Why the Future of Civilization Depends on True Religion. Uh, Dr. Hahn, thank you so much for joining us. It's a real honor to get to uh, talk with you again. Well, it's an honor for me, Lou, and also to be with your good shepherd, my good friend, Bishop Strickland, Thank you for your faithful witness. Thank you, Dr. Hahn. It's great to see you again, at least virtually. Yes. Well, tell us a little bit about the genesis of this book. Um, I, I noticed in reading it that there was, it seemed almost to me to be a sequel to First Society uh, in, in terms of the, some of the similar ideas. Uh, when did you start writing the book, and, and what was the, um, the idea that, that, that launched it for you? The First Society is subtitled The Sacrament of Matrimony and the Restoration of the Social Order. That came out back in 2018. And almost as soon as I was done and sent the galleys off to the publisher, I was already in conversation with Brandon McGinley about doing a follow-up. So you're very perceptive, Lou. It really does continue in that same line, that trajectory. On the other hand, I should also add that when people read this they tell me they're reminded of the Lamb's Supper, that we're not here to build the kingdom so much as we are to receive the kingdom that descends as the new Jerusalem. In my book, The Lamb's Supper, I talk about how in the Mass, the angels and saints surround us, whether we know it or not, whether we can see them or not. And so the sacramental organism we call the Catholic Church is being built from on high. And so we're not a different denomination than the angels and saints in heaven. It is one Catholic church because it's universal. And I think the more we recognize this, the more I look back, in fact, to Rome's sweet home, the more I discovered decades ago, as I prepare to celebrate my 35th anniversary as a Catholic, that the Catholic faith alone reveals the civilization-forming potential of the Christian faith in its fullness, that Christendom was not an accident, that the social expression of our faith and extending the kingship of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit through the sacraments 
This is not something extraneous. This isn't something that goes beyond our beliefs. This is simply living out the inner logic of the love that we receive when the sacraments are administered by Christ from on high. And so I think in some ways this is a rediscovery of truths that we've known, but it's also a rediscovery of things that have been hiding for the last 30, 40, or 50 years. But curiously, they've been hiding in plain view because it isn't as though the church changed its teaching. You know, it's just that the culture has become so much more deeply secularized and radically post-Christian mm-hmm. and now more and more anti-Christian. And so this book really does just unpack the inner logic of God's fatherly love to show that the Catholic religion is the fulfillment of the virtue of religion, but it exerts this capacity, this power to not only form civilizations, but also to reform them. And that's what I believe all of us should begin longing for and even praying for, even though I dare say a lot of Catholics have even stopped desiring to see a Christian culture, a Catholic social Mm -hmm. order. But all of this is really implied in the Great Commission, the parting words of our Savior to his disciples in Matthew 28, when he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, not that it will be given at the end of time, but it is given now. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, not just disciples within the nations. You know, when Jesus said, my kingship is not of this earth, he didn't say my kingship is not in this earth. It's derived from divinity, but it's meant to be lived out by humanity. And again, I just think that if we assemble the beliefs that we all profess, we're going to understand why we're being pointed back to what St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas, I think, both simply took for granted. Well, Dr. Hanna, I really appreciate what you're saying, and it's great to be with you and and Luke Arredondo uh, working here at the Institute. I had the chance to, uh, with uh, Dr. Stacy Tresenkos, we had a conversation similar to this with your co-author, Brandon McGinley. And one of the things that we talked about fairly significantly was that religion is about connecting, and we use the word ligaments. And I'm reminded of that as you're speaking, because I think one thing that we're dealing with in the world today, with all that we're dealing with, is a lot of disconnection, a disconnection from God and humanity, a disconnection from each other. And I love what you're talking about, because it really is rediscovering our connection to our loving Father, our Creator, and to each other. And that is really the basis of creating the society of the kingdom, which may be another way of talking about the church or religion. It's about humanity connecting to their maker. And so I, I really appreciate it. I love all your, I haven't read all your books, but I've read a lot of them. And I love the way you write. It's very accessible, but very high level all at the same time. So thank you. Wow, that's high praise coming from you, but I'm grateful. And uh, not to us, O Lord, but to your name give glory. You know, you put your finger, I think, on the pulse. And that is, um, as Catholics, we are trained by the living tradition to distinguish, but to distinguish not to separate and oppose the way our world does, but to distinguish in order to unite. You know, so we distinguish soul and body, you know, but not to privilege the flesh over whatever you call this thing, the soul, you know, we we distinguish to unite. Likewise, male and female, 
you know, in this era of identity politics, you can see how male and female, black and white, faith and reason, you know, politics and religion, all of these things are distinguished. And then suddenly we end up separating and opposing them. And it's a reductionistic approach. It minimalizes the interior, the invisible, the soul, which is hardly less real than the body, but more real and inherently immortal. And so while we believe in the resurrection of the body, we recognize that the priority belongs to the spiritual over the physical. But we distinguish those two, again, to unite. And so what I really believe is that as Catholics in America, our patriotic duty is to show how to unite not only faith and reason, but individual rights and the common good, you know, the public and the private. And in the process, I think we're going to lead Catholics to a rediscovery of what was there all along, but for the last 50 years, for however many reasons, we really have, I think, lost, sat, lost sight or lost track of that. And by the way, I should mention, too, it's great to be with you. And I remember talking with you about the book, Hope to Die, the uh, Christian meaning of death and the resurrection of the body. And that came out in the immediate aftermath of COVID. And we didn't plan on that, but obviously our Lord knew. We just wanted it to be out before Easter. On the other hand, this book, It Is Right and Just, the uh, <laughs> Why the Future of Civilization Depends on True Religion, came out in the immediate aftermath of a non of a very controversial uh, presidential election, you know, and I, I think we have to recognize that God makes promises and keeps them, whereas politicians not so much. As Mark Twain <laughs> whipped, you know, politicians are like diapers; they need to be changed frequently, and for the same reason. You know? <laughs> and I don't mean politics, but I think we all know what we're talking about. Absolutely. I think one of the themes that you bring in in the, in the second half of the book is that what we deal with when we try and take our faith beyond the private, right, which is what the Enlightenment and, and progressivism wants to do, is take religion and make it something privatized and, and it's confined to within the boundaries of the Church or maybe even just within your mind, that you don't even get to express it. Um, when we go beyond that, we get into an area where subsidiarity and solidarity kind of have to be balanced out. Um, could you could you talk a little bit about kind of how that factors into this idea of, of building a civilization, of, of, of restoring civilization, um, the, the ways in, in which solidarity and subsidiarity kind of factor in? Right. Well, I think we recognize that solidarity bespeaks the unity, and oftentimes that unity has to be established from on high through those in authority. Subsidiarity recognizes that whatever lower levels can do, they ought to be allowed to do for the sake of freedom and, you know, rights and so on. The, um, the thing that we have to speak to is this, though, that there are different phases in history where religion takes on new meaning, different meaning, mm -hmm. contrary or contradictory meaning. You know, I think of the first stage, which we might describe as classical, really because it goes all the way back to uh, Plato and Aristotle and Cicero. So the Greco-Roman philosophers, apart from the Bible, and yet at the same time, this continues on into Augustine's classic work on the city of God and into Aquinas and the Summa. And this understands the meaning of religion to be a matter of justice and not a lower, but the highest form of justice, 
You find this, for example, in Aristotle's commentary on the Athenian constitution, where he not only explains but defends religion as public, not just private. The altars of sacrifice. Well, I mean, that raises the question which Cicero addresses. What about superstition? What about ignorance? And so while Cicero acknowledges the fact that justice requires religion and to offer sacrifice to the powers in heaven, nevertheless, you know, what Augustine does is to just fine-tune that a little bit, but in a very significant way, to show that justice is what we owe other people, you know, giving to others what is their due. At the lowest level, commutative justice, that's simple. I go to the grocery store and I pay for the groceries before I take them out. Distributive justice is a little more complex because it deals with the common good. It deals with equity, fairness, and that sort of thing. So it's not just a transactional wage or salary, but it's providing for the common good. But Augustine and Aquinas both clearly recognize and emphasize transcendent forms of justice where you can't repay. You, I can't repay my parents and give them life like they gave it to me. So what do I do for justice sake? I honor my father and my mother. And the Greeks and the Romans recognize that transcendent form of justice. Likewise, my country, you know, I have to be patriotic because I can't give them back the common good and justice that they gave to me. That's the virtue of patriotism, an even higher form of transcendent justice. But the highest form of all, and this is recognized by reason and faith, it's taught in the catechism as well as in Cicero, the highest form is religio. And the highest expression of that is sacrifice. And this is a matter of justice. And so when we say it is right and just, it is our duty and our salvation, what that implies clearly is that it's wrong to not give God thanks or praise. And it's an injustice. It's not a small or a minor one. It's a, it's a major infraction against social justice, transcendent justice. It's a cosmic crime to not acknowledge him, to not praise him, to not thank him, not only for persons privately, but also for the social order publicly. And so this is the first and most important phase, but it's the one that has been long forgotten. And as you mentioned, the Enlightenment, and I would say even before with the Protestant Reformation, the Protestant reformers did not intend to privatize religion. But by the time you move from the 1530s to the 1630s, the 40 years war is resolved by the Treaty of Westphalia. I won't go into the details, but the formula is really crucial. What everyone agreed to, Lutherans, Calvinists, Catholics, was cuius regio, eius religio. In other words, mm -hmm. whoever is your king, right. he'll define your religion. Well, you have just put religion under the, poli the politicians. You have privatized. You have relativized that. You set something into motion that that's takes exactly, centuries. Yeah, that, and that's exactly the opposite of what we see God doing in sacred scripture, informing Israel. Right? There are local gods in Israel, in in, in surrounding Israel, and what's re, what they are re, being receiving the revelation of is the Lord, who is the God of all of that. And what, so, what we kind of see unfolding before us in the last four hundred years, five hundred years, is we're going back in that direction at least in terms of the way that, that public society wants to think of religion, right? Yeah, that's right. Absolutely, Lou. I think you've put your, you've really penetrated that. And so, you know, if you see ancient Israel, you can see a national family. It's not just a nation. Yeah. There are 12 tribes. And besides the 12 tribes, there are hundreds of clans and thousands of households and then tens of thousands of married couples. 
And so the solidarity is there by religion, but you go to the Holy Family in Nazareth, and they're practicing religion there in their home every bit as much as in the Jerusalem temple. And so religion has this capacity to unite people, and true religion has this capacity to sanctify them, and not just as individuals. I mean, as Catholics, I think we're all recognizing and affirming that we want to be holy. We want to grow in sanctity. But it makes no sense to want holiness for myself, but not for my wife. Okay, so for my wife, but not my kids? Well, of course I want it for my children, too. For my family, but not the neighbors? No, I want holiness for me and my family, but for the neighbors, too. And not just for the neighborhood. You know, is it just for the neighborhood, but not for my town of Steubenville? I want it for my town. But not just my town, but all cities, not just all cities, but all states, all nations. And, you know, this is the way we ought to be thinking, because this is Catholic common sense. It really means just unpacking the inner logic of our faith. Dr. Hahn, you've really touched on exactly what I'm thinking, and I love that. The, what you just illustrated is subsidiarity meeting solidarity. And That's right. what, as both of you have been talking, what I love architecture. I'm no architect. I don't know the, the, the real science of architecture, but I love the idea of buildings. And it, it occurs to me as you're talking that there's much of that in Scripture. Christ uses that imagery of a foundation built on solid rock. And what occurs to me is it, it also speaks of Christ as the cornerstone. And I think what we're dealing with is a society that is rejecting the structure of the church because people are not founded on the basic elements that the church is built on. So I think it's just an interesting image that comes out of Scripture for me to realize, as you said, every man is, is part of that structure, to be a godly man. And every woman is a godly woman. Then in God's structure, a man and a woman come together and begin to build their children, their family, other families, exactly what you described. And it's like the the great cathedral of God's plan for humanity is fractured because people aren't founding themselves in the truth that God has revealed. And so we're, we're a, a civilization threatened at least, and many have the foundation still, thankfully. But I think we're threatened with a society without foundation, and you can't build anything on that kind of vacuum. You know, absolutely right. You know, uh, you trace this back through the Enlightenment of the Reformation, but you fast forward and you recognize that fragmentation was like a train wreck in slow motion until finally mm. what we're facing with is not only moral disintegration, but social disintegration, where we know how to celebrate diversity, supposedly, but that is not capable of uniting us. And so the, the idea of architecture, I think, is is brilliant. And I, I think that, you know, the fragmentation or even the destruction of the temple is symbolic of a civilization that has not only lapsed into infidelity and immorality, but idolatry, as we talk about in this book. The other thing I believe is that as we come to the third and final stage after the classical, 
after the modern or enlightenment view, we come to a postmodern view where secularists have rewritten this progressive narrative so much that now religion is not just something that is viewed as private, but as something potentially dangerous because it becomes the origin or it can renew morality that is becoming identified more and more as hate speech or, you know, uh, moral poison, you know, and, and I think what's happening is kind of curious. I mean, just from a biblical point of view, you know, pagan nations in antiquity were mostly tribal and regional. You know, there's a breakthrough that occurs with Jesus Christ coming. And that is we have something beyond Israel as a nation or a kingdom. We have something truly international, something truly Catholic. You know, and now if you're going to reject the Catholic faith, you're going to have to come up with an alternative that is on par with its extension. And this is why I think socialism and communism and all of the different neo-Marxist social theories, social critical theories, are trying to create some international view that is inherently and thoroughly secular, but they're almost like the devil who apes what God is doing. That, you know, you want to have an international workers' party or international socialism. You know, and I think as we discern the signs of the times, we've got to recognize, okay, yeah, there are secular one-world government conspiracies out there. We're not stupid or conspiratorialists to think that way. But what we've forgotten is that long before they came about, we were the original one-world government (laughs) conspiracy, only the conspiring is the spirit of Christ poured out upon all flesh so that God could be fathering one family. It's not a playground. It's a battleground, to be sure. But in a certain sense, the outcome of the battle is certain. Christ is going to win, even if it takes a long time to mop things up, as it seems to be. But I (laughs) I, I believe that as Catholics, we can reappropriate this and say, okay, not only can we understand what they're doing better than they do, but we can also return to that task that is the Great Commission, to go about making disciples of all nations, not relying on our political parties, our programs, or platforms, but relying upon the one, the only one, who is not just the high priest in heaven, but the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and for that matter, the President of Presidents, and the Prime Minister, and all of the above. And again, this isn't overheated religious rhetoric. This, this simply follows logically and theologically from I believe in God the Father Almighty, and in Jesus Christ, his only son. And his lordship is something that we're trying to live out, again, in terms of subsidiarity, all of the building blocks of the temple, but in terms of you know solidarity as well. I'm reminded of that you know, uh, that, that's, that story of, a, of three people who are all doing the same task. What are you doing? I'm laying bricks. What are you doing? I'm building a wall. And what are you doing? I'm building a temple. Yeah. They were all doing the same thing, but one had the big picture. And that's why you, your, your architectural metaphor to me, Bishop Strickland, is just, uh, you know, it's a bullseye. We've got to see that. The other metaphor I sometimes utilize is what the Cappadocian fathers were doing back in the fourth century. As Christianity was emerging from the culture of death known as the Roman Empire, they were celebrating primarily the holy sacrifice. But they couldn't help but notice the symphonia, the symphony of the Catholic truth and how it was uniting, illuminating, and in a certain sense, exorcising the Roman Empire. And when you look at what Aquinas says about religion, again, drawing from Cicero and Augustine, but really clarifying it better than anybody else, 
He speaks of religio, even the natural moral virtue in the natural law, as the virtus virtutum, the virtue of virtues. You know, we know that virtues are to the soul like what muscles are to the body. They make us strong. They make us virtuous. They make us holy. But religion is like the conductor of a symphony. He doesn't have to be a master musician at all of the instruments, but you have to coordinate and unify all of these master musicians so that you're on the same page doing the same score. And then suddenly the diversity, the subsidiarity, you know, ends up rising to the level of a unity that is almost unthinkable for us moderns or postmoderns. But I'm convinced that Christ wants this much more than I do. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Dr. Hahn, for joining us. Um, this is this is a really great book. gives us a, a lot of things to think about. Um, one one last thing I think I would I would like to, to mention, just talk with you briefly a bit, is this. You, you talk about this idea that true religion, right? is necessary, and we have to kind of fight for the definition of true religion. But before we can even do that, we've got to fight for this idea of truth. And, and the, the, that's maybe where, where, the, where the battle starts. Um, yeah, I just, it's, it's, it's really a fantastic book. Um, and I, can you tell people where they can get it? Well, yes. I mean, they can go to the, 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 the usual suspects, places like Amazon. I would encourage you to... Uh, to patronize the Catholic stores in your area as soon as they're open or go online and buy from them. But the simplest thing would be simply to go to our publishing arm. And the, the publishing arm of the St. Paul Center is Emmaus Road Publishing. And you just go to stpaulcenter.com, stpaulcenter.com. And uh, there are a number of other books. One I want to recommend in particular by Dr. Ralph Martin entitled The Church in Crisis. Uh, and this good. one blew my mind, and it's amazing. And so we're We had grateful. Dr. Martin on to talk about the book recently. Oh, that was I'm, fantastic. I'm it must have been. Yeah. It was great. Thank you for the opportunity to share this, share in this conversation. Thanks. And I, I would just put in a plug that I would encourage everyone listening and all of their friends to read this book because I think it it speaks of basic, as it says, I mean, that's a pretty significant subtitle. Why the future of civilization depends on true religion. But it really is the future of civilization that we're talking about. So thank right. you so much. Oh, you're so welcome.